into Colossians 3, 12 to 17. We are moving through the book of, or letter to the Colossian church, and it's by way of a very quick recap. This is a letter written by Paul from his first uh, jail stint in Rome. And um, by all accounts, the Colossian church is a new church, not planted by Paul. And he is writing to kind of encourage them and to, uh, to give them fatherly advice, saying, hey, you're setting out as a church. There's a lot of pitfalls. A lot of things are going to come to you. And here's how you are to endure. If you're going to become the kind of church that God is making you and wants you to be, here is what you need to know. And he offers lots of warnings and, and so on. And here in this passage, he moves again for the second, well, the whole book, but whole letter, but the second time, at least specifically, he outlines Christian community. Earlier in chapter 2, verses 1 to 7, he talks about community. And you remember, uh, it's about the story. There's a common story that unites and makes a community. And the story of the church is the gospel. And that needs to be central, and you have to know it so well that when the world starts offering other narratives and other stories about who you are and how to live, you can say, no, that's not the right story. This is a story that believes this story. This is the church that believes this story. Um, in the second one, he does something a little bit different, but no, no less practical. So let me read uh, Colossians 3, verses 12 to 17. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one, sorry, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Amen. So, what's Paul doing here? Let me start with a guy named John Fawcett. John Fawcett, uh, in 1764, became the pastor of this little church here. We'll show the picture of it here. It's at Waynesgate in Yorkshire in England. And he was paid, him and his wife, he, they were there together, and uh, he was paid 25 pounds, British pounds, a year, which comes out if you take inflation and modern, it's about $9,000 Canadian a year. So imagine trying to live on $9,000 a year. Not simple. And he does this for a good six, seven years. And then because he's a, he's, a good, he's a gifted preacher and a theologian and he's written a little bit, he gets an offer from London to go to a place called Center Lane Baptist, a big church. This was the big time. And at first, after mulling it over, he decides to accept it. But on the day when he is set to move, there's a little wagon with his few possessions because you have to understand for seven years, he, he couldn't even eat some days. Uh, he was a very poor area. They were struggling the whole time. And as the wagon is, is ready to go, some of the church came out to, meet, to say farewell. And when they did so, they wept and they asked him to stay. And his wife says, we have to stay. And he agrees and says, we're going to stay. And he said words apparently at that moment that ended up becoming a very famous hymn that I don't know if we sing it because it's not the most singable hymn anymore, but it's called, this is what he said, Blessed be the tie that binds our hearts in Christian love. The fellowship of kindred mind is like to that above. And he, everybody knows that hymn? Some of you may know the hymn, Blessed Be the Ties of Binds, yeah. So when, I read, when you read about this, that's sort of a community, right? Imagine the sort of a church 
that loves their pastor so much that knows it's a, it's a burden for him to be there. And yet they say, but stay, we need you. We love you. We want you to be a part of this. And then imagine how much he must understand their love because he then says, I'll do it. I'm going to be in poverty my whole life, but I'll do it. And he gives it all up. And that's sort of a community. And it's modeled in scripture. You see Paul doing that when he's on the beach and they're all saying bye to him and all the elders and they're weeping. And that's sort of a community. That depth of community is something we really don't have uh, often. And, you know, as an example, is picture any church. COVID hits, right? And a lot of people scatter from the church. And who, the ones who stay, I mean, COVID, I don't think was so much, a, an imp, I don't think it was negative per se, as much as it was a culling of the herd. It kind of revealed who is here, who is the community in a lot of ways. And, but how do you foster a real community? How do you foster a church that is willing to stay even when the music isn't what they want, right? Even when the preaching isn't exactly what they want. How do you get a people who will stay here at Redeemer for 75, 76 years or longer? Like, who will not go? And I think about some of you, in fact, we have Phyllis here. Phyllis, uh, she's here, Phyllis Lowell. And she's, what, 93 now? Five. And we've got Betty here. And we've got Ruth. And we have, I know, Al Stevenson. We have all these people, and more, forgive me if I don't say your name. But we have all these folks who have been here almost twice as long as I've been alive, or more in some cases. Now, what is it? Surely, I can't say that the reason they're here is because we've had a consistently beautiful pastors. Like, they've been wonderful all the way through. Never a problem. They've seen the best and the worst. How, does, how do you build a community of people like that who are here and it's an actual family that it's bound? Effectively, what, what John Fawcett is explaining in, in that song and what we are talking about here is how do you bring what is true in heaven to be true on earth? That unity, that bond that, beyond, that transcends our, our, our being offended at times or any number of things or inconvenienced. How do we, tr- how do we build a real community? that can injure, a weatherproof community. And Paul here, I think, offers that. He offers this recipe for a community that is both close and deep. And he does it, I think, pretty, pretty well, seeing how it's the Word of God. And um, so we're going to look at, at three things he points out here that are exactly that, this recipe. And the church, deep communities, are busy doing, being, and nurturing. Okay? That's what, busy, that's what good, close, deep church communities are, are busy doing doing, being, and nurturing. So let's begin with doing. So first, Paul opens up with this language of dressing, putting on, putting off. And one thing that's important to know is it's the active voice, okay? This is, this is my nerdy side. I studied English before I was a Christian. And when I see tenses change in the Bible, it's important. And so when he says, put something on, then what he is saying is, hey, you have access to it. It's something in your closet, but you need to put it on. It's an active thing. And you're going to see in a minute, he has the opposite when he talks about a passive, what you don't have to do. So he's saying, put this on. You have to put something on, and if you exercise these virtues, if you exercise all the virtues, we'll walk through them quickly, then what you're going to be doing is that, that those virtues, when they're exercised in you individually, and then as a corporate group, collectively, you then begin to bond or, and create deep and close community. And so he starts with compassionate hearts. Okay? First one, compassionate hearts. Now, when he says hearts, I always have to qualify this. The word heart in, in, in the Greek here, and, when, and as a good Jew, he would have said the same thing in his Hebrew. In Greek, it's the word splanchna. Not a really good word. <laughs> it's not when you put on a card, right, and embroider it and send it out. 
enjoy the splanchna. I love you with all my splanchna. Um, no, because it, it actually means guts. It means your bowels. So in Acts 1.18, when Judas, it says that Judas falls headlong and his splanchna spilled out. So, because remember, in the ancient world, the, uh, all the body parts had different, uh, the, were, were uh, assumed to have a part to play in all your emotions. So a man who was angry all the time would have a, a, a lot of spleen, you know, and all these different things. And so he's saying, you have to have your splanch, your hearts have to be compassionate. And what he means by it is very simple. It is love characterized by mercy. That is what compassion is. Love characterized by mercy. Okay? Then, I have to move quickly. Then kindness. Kindness, when it's referred to, it's amazing. It's usually a, a, something that, a characteristic of God, not of man in the Bible. And for instance, in Timothy, I, I, don't, I won't put it on the, on the screen, but in Timothy 3, verses 4 to 5, the kindness is almost always God giving to you what you need most. So in the case of Timothy, or t- Titus, sorry, it is um, man needed salvation most, and God in his kindness did that. And the Psalms, it's the same thing. In the Psalms, you see, when I cried out for you in my need, you answered me in your kindness. So kindness is to give somebody what they most need. Okay? Now, moving on. Humility. Humility is a funny one because in the ancient world, humility wasn't a virtue at all. And if there's any skeptics in the room, understand that if you consider humility something that is good, you only think that because of Christianity. Because in the ancient world, to be humble meant you were either, either it, was a, it was servility and cowardice. It was a weakness to be humble. Because men are not, especially men, oh my goodness. Uh, come to our men's breakfast, I talk about men in the ancient world. And, and, you know, if you read the Iliad, for instance, by Homer, you know one thing that they never say is Achilles, the great warrior, was humble. No, he wasn't humble. He butchered people. That was what a man did. And so when Christ comes and the Christians come saying humility is a virtue, it's radically strange to the world. And it's, of course, what Christ does. Christ models uh, humility. In uh, Philippians 2 is probably the best spot. His, the ultimate model, the example of humility, is dying for your enemies. And Philippians 2 covers that. And so he says, as a church, you have to not only be compassionate and kind, but you have to be self-giving like Christ. That's what humility is. It's C.S. Lewis, right? Humility isn't thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. And that's humility. Gentleness. Gentleness is also not weakness. That's often one we think of meekness and we think the soft person is, weak, is meek. It's not really true. Meekness, if you were here two years ago, two and a half, when I preached through the Sermon on the Mount, meekness of Christ is not weakness. It is controlled and noble power. That is what meekness is. It is being powerful, but controlling it and knowing how to use it when and why. And so meekness is knowing you don't need to pull out the sword. <laughs> it's caring for people properly. So that is, is that one. Uh, gentleness. Uh, patience. Patience is what, again, all through the New Testament especially, is what God shows to man. In Romans 2.4, God is patient with you, sinner. That's why he hasn't come yet. He's giving you time. He's trying to get as many people. He's trying to get all of the elect, all his chosen ones in. And so he's patient towards us. And this leads into the, the next one, which is forbearance when he says, bear with one another. And here, Paul may be at his most practical and relatable best, because this is in Matthew 17, when, when Christ says, uh, he says, gosh, how long will I have to bear this generation? And so bearing here is a negative term, sort of. It means putting up with people who are like idiots. That's what it means. And this is relatable, right? Because if you go to church, 
doesn't matter how wonderful the church is. There's certain people here you have to bear. And I'm not saying it's because they're bad people. It's just because they grate you the wrong way. And what do you expect when a group of sinners comes together? It's going to happen. But everywhere else in the world, you could say, you know what, I don't like this here. I'm, I'm leaving. I'm not going to work at a place with these sorts of people. I'm not going to go to this, well, I was a country club. Who was a country club? Um, uh, but you wouldn't frequent, you wouldn't be a part of a group of people who you have to bear and deal with, you have to put up with. But in the church, Paul says, no, no, you have to put up with them. Because first, you're being shaped by it. It's causing you to become more patient. But it's also because you need to understand that they're the world. This is how Christ is with you. If you think you don't need to bear with anybody, then you maybe have lost sight of the fact of how much Christ has to bear with you. Right? And so, but it's very relatable. You do have to, there are times in the church, he says, when you, a strong church bears with one another. Because if you just keep going church to church thinking you're going to find a church where nobody bothers you, you will when you plant your own church in your house and invite no one into it. Right? That's it. It's done. And then it's not a church. But, so, forbearance. And then that moves again, last, not last, second last, forgiveness. So we live in a time of, there's not, there's, our culture, listen, I don't want to be too, too critical. Maybe I do want to be critical. Our culture doesn't forgive, right? We cancel, we ignore, and we excuse. But we don't really forgive. So if somebody has done something, we just cancel them. We forget they exist, right? Or we call, we say over time, we forget it's happened, and then we welcome them back eventually when all the people who had a real beef against them are dead. Right? So we forget, we ignore. Or we just excuse it, and we say, oh, but it's different, it's okay, it's okay. And so the world doesn't really forgive at all. I, I, I struggle to see it forgiving. However, in the church, we are commanded, literally commanded to forgive. You must obey, this officer must forgive, he tells us. And for, I say it so often, but it's the best example I can think of. To forgive is to absorb wrong to forgive is to absorb a debt that you'd rather exact, right? And so every ounce of forgiveness requires absorbing a wrong. Somebody has to eat the debt. Somebody. And the question is, who is it going to be? Christ says, the church. If the world that wants to get justice right, who's going to bear the cost of it? It should be, we should be the first ones. The church should be at the front line of every good pursuit in the world, not because the world says so, but because Christ says that's our job. And we do what Christ did, to make the world right, he bore the cost. And so, uh, by way of example, if, if you break my iPhone, I could forgive you, right? But make no mistake, I have to pay for that iPhone. Somebody has to replace it. The, the only difference is you don't have to. So what I am doing, if I do that, is I am absorbing the debt rather than exacting it and saying, you owe me for it. And so we are compelled to do this. And not only could, we're, we're told we have to, and then N.T. Wright, this British, was a pastor, scholar, Bishop of Durham, incredible scholar, Here's what he has to say about this passage. First, it is utterly inappropriate for one who knows the joy and release of being forgiven to refuse to share that blessing with another. Second, it is highly presumptuous to refuse to forgive one whom Christ himself has already forgiven. That's harsh, but he's right. Because remember, Paul's not speaking to the world. He's talking about this church, about churches. If We have to assume, I don't know the hearts of everybody, so I have to assume if you're here and you profess Christianity, you're a Christian. In which case... You have to forgive people because Christ has forgiven them. So you're sitting amongst people who Christ has forgiven. And if you hold a grudge against them, what you are effectively saying says right, and he's right. <laughs> I couldn't avoid the pun. Um, what he's saying is, what you're doing is you're saying, God, I know you've forgiven him, but he doesn't deserve my forgiveness. Maybe yours, but not mine. 
You see how, when you say it like that, it sounds pretty stupid, right? And that's exactly the point. So we are called to forgive. And he goes even further and he says, you forgive him, forgive the other person as the Lord has forgiven you. And now how did God forgive you? Did you have to pay back? Did you have to come groveling? Did you have to say, when you came and repented to God, did he say, I'm not so sure you admit it. I'm not so sure it's real. No. Did he, did, was all that required? No. And so when someone comes and has wronged you here at the church, or any church, and he's a Christian or she's a Christian, when we, I'll say this, be quick to forgive, not flippantly, but to say, okay, if they have repented, that ought to be enough because that is exactly what you are hoping is enough for you in Christ, that your repentance is enough. So do you have the ability to be like Christ a little bit? You'll see in a minute you do. So we're called to do that, to not just forgive, but to forgive like Christ, forgive fully, not forgive them. And then if they screw up with the same sin again in a year or two, say, see, I knew it. I shouldn't have forgiven you. See, would Christ do that to us? No. So Paul's drawing a really hard line, but he's saying if, you're this, if you become this sort of a community, you're going to see depth because you're going to start caring for people. You're going to be humble. You're going to forgive people. doesn't mean it's going to be easy, but that's what, you, that's what he's saying. And the last thing he says in this first part is love. And this is fascinating what he does here. Above all these, put on love, which binds everything in perfect harmony, which is where Fawcett gets this idea of binds, right? Um, and so if, depending on your translation, if you've got the King James, uh, some of you who prefer that translation, it'll say, which is the bond of perfection, which is more literal, but not as helpful because it doesn't really help us understand what's going on. So the ESV and these other more dynamic translations try to fill in those blanks. And so what Paul is saying is he's making two claims about love. The first one is he's doing something so radically counter-humanity. In the ancient world, no religion to that date and thereafter, except for Christianity and ones that have spun off of it, no religion, no worldview, no philosopher ever, ever, ever said that love is a supreme virtue. Never. They would, in fact, quite the opposite. Diogenes, I don't know if some of you know your Greek philosophers. Diogenes, though, says, love is great, but it's the occupation of the idol. Meaning, yeah, love is fine, but it's only for those people who have nothing else to worry about in life. You know, when you're fat and lazy and you're sitting at home because you're filthy rich, then that's what you do, right? In the same way, you know, if you, if you become super, super rich, and I'm, I don't want to offend anybody because there's nothing wrong with having money, depending on how it's used, but you become so well-to-do that you have nothing to do with your days, and you start to make a big deal about little things, right? Uh, because you have nothing else. There's no other, you have no other discomforts in your life, so you make a big deal about anything. And Diogenes is saying, that's the kind of person who cares about love. Because it's, it's not an important virtue. Because the great virtues of the ancient world were prudence, justice, temperance, and courage. Those were the four great virtues of Aristotle and Plato and so on. Not love. So Christ, well Christ, and Paul is saying, Above all of these virtues is love. It's the thread that binds them. And he goes even further. He doesn't just say, see, here's where you have to, uh, it's helpful to know the Greek a little. Because where he says above all, the word is epi, it doesn't really mean, it doesn't mean above all per se. It means upon. So for instance, in Luke, when Jesus is baptized, the Holy Spirit comes upon, same word, Christ, right? Um, and when the, the crown of thorns is placed on his head at the end of Matthew, that is placed upon his head. And it's the same word being used here. So the garment imagery is still there. Put on all these things. And what he is saying is, all these virtues are good. But when they are cloaked in love, love 
perfects them. He binds them all together with this thread that makes them something. You see, a lot of jewels and shells are one thing with they're in your hand, but when they're bound together by a thread, they become a necklace. And so what Paul is saying, in fact, it's right there, again, I'm sorry, I don't like to go to, okay, I do like to go to the Greek, but I shouldn't go so often. But when he says the word perfection here, or perfect harmony, it's the word teleotis. Teleos, if you, again, I don't know how much you absorb it when I talk, um, but the word telos, Christ is the beginning and the end. The end is the word telos. And what he's saying is, you are, he, that's the word destiny. So he is your destiny. The destiny of an acorn is to be an oak tree, right? And so, when he says, use that word here, what he's saying is the destiny of all these virtues is love. Love is what makes them what they ought to be. Without love, they are good virtues, but with love, they are godly virtues. And this is what he's saying, put it, that has to be the thing that kind of, because compassion without love can be any number of things. I've used the example before. If you see me walk a, a little old lady across the street, you don't know why I'm doing it, right? I could be doing it because I want to mug her when I get to the other side. I could be doing it because a, a pretty girl's watching and I want to look really nice. I could be doing it because my parishioners are there and I want to look like I practice what I preach. I could be doing it because I want to get in her will. By the way, <laughs> no. <laughs> but you see, motives are, you, we don't know. So compassion without love, is, we don't know. What is it? it could be, it's, it's self-serving is what it is. And so Paul's brilliant here in saying this. And, he's the re- and here's the important part. Well, I'll close this for first one. It's the longest one, the first point. is When he says put it on, you have to understand, put it on because it's not natural to you. It's not native to you to be this sort of a person. None of us. And so he says you have to exercise it. Christ has made you capable of being this sort of a person, but you now need to exercise that, that, that right you have and put it on yourself. And the more you do it, the more you're going to find yourself conforming to this sort of a person. I've used so many examples this week. I was reading to my kids um, uh, a fairy tales book. And it's, it's nice, it's good, it's long, but it's not quite the Brothers Grimm version. So you've all heard the Frog Prince uh, or seen movies or something like this. Now, I'll tell you what the story is and I'll, I'll explain how this, the, the kid version changes it a little to make it a little nicer. So the frog prince is a princess and she loses her ball and the frog helps her. But he says, I'll get your ball out of the well, out of the fountain for you, but only if you agree to take me home and treat me like one of your own. I want to eat at your table, off your plate. I want to sleep in the same room in bed. I want to be treated like you. And she says, sure, sure, because she's not, she has no intent of keeping the promise. She just wants the ball back. So he gets it. And then she runs away and he can't keep up because he's a frog. But eventually he makes his way back to the castle. And he's like, hey, you owe me. And her father, the king, surprise, surprise, the king says, if you made a, a vow, you have to obey it. So, she, so because she has to do it, she has to act like she loves us. She has to treat him well. So she says, fine. And grudgingly lets him sit on her, uh, on her chair at dinner. She lets him eat off her plate, which is kind of weird, right? That's okay. It's a fairy tale. And all of that. And this goes on and on. Now, in the Brothers Grimm version, which is darker, she eventually gets so mad, she throws him against the wall and he crumples into a heap and, and becomes a prince. A little dark. But in the kid version that I'm reading, it says, you know what? Over time, the longer she pretended to love him, the more she came to love him. And eventually one night, before he goes to bed, she kisses him on the head and says "Good night." And that's the moment he, is, he becomes a prince. Because love shown makes him what he ought to be. And the idea there that connects here is 
you're not naturally a compassionate, loving person. If you think you are, talk to your spouse. You're not. Like, none of us are. Just let's be humble for a minute. It's one of them up there, right? Uh, we're not naturally that person. That's why Paul says, put it on. You have to do the work, okay? So, that's true. Church is filled with, oh yeah, so the church is filled with God-filled people. We're forgiven. So now our goal, so now Paul says, now you have to start doing it. Start living into these, these virtues, okay? Next thing he says, so start doing that. But now comes being. So the only reason you can do the things he's telling you to do, because he'd be, he'd be cruel if he said, do something you can't do. If you tell me that, you'll only, uh, that I will die unless I can dunk a basketball in a regulation hoop, I'm in trouble. I can't even get six inches off the ground probably. So that would be cruel of you to lay a condition like that. But Paul's saying, no, you can do this. But the reason you can do these things is because you are something. Okay? And he says two things very simply, because you are and you have something. So you're being, you're, who you are helps. So first thing he says right at the outset, he says that you are as God, so put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. So these words are so incredible. First notice what he says, put on as the chosen ones, which means you are not first asked in Christianity to be good and then you become God's chosen ones. See, that's the way the world works, that's the way morality works and Islam and every other religion. Christianity says, no, no, because you've already been chosen freely, out of gratitude, now obey. It's not obey and then be accepted. It's you've been accepted, now obey. Christianity, pretty straightforward. So he says, you are the chosen ones. Now think of the, again of the language. He's using intentionally Old Testament language here because Paul is saying, you have been grafted in to the people of God. You are the people of God. Abraham is your father now. You are part of that. You are the chosen ones. You are holy and loved. And those words, let me just define them very quickly because we have to, because uh, I think it's worth it. <laughs> First, when he says you are chosen, I know people get mad at this. You're chosen. It's literally the word in Greek, eklektos, or elected. You have been chosen by God. And yes, you chose him. Yes, I understand this idea that you have to submit to the calling. But let me use an example that we're going to be preaching Jonah in the summer. Uh, Jacob will be preaching it, so I don't know if he's, gonna, if he's here. Uh, so hopefully he's listening. Jonah, think about Jonah. Jonah is elected by God. Right? God chooses Jonah. Jonah does not choose God. God, the moment he says, Jonah, your job is now to go to Nineveh and share my mercy with them and call, and call them to repentance. Jonah, at that moment, can resist if he'd like. But do you notice he actually cannot resist? Because the moment he is chosen for that calling, God says, I will not let you not do it. I'm going to make you do it. Now, I'll work with you. I'm going to make it so that you eventually accept me. But I have chosen you. And because I've chosen you, I am not letting you go. See that? He has no hope. Jonah has no hope at that point. And what Paul is saying about us is the same thing. You've been chosen. Yes, you're a sinner. Yes, you're a nightmare. Yes, you're going to want to run from him. But if you've been chosen by God, he's going to finish what he started. And he's going to make you fall for him. One way or the other. So, we're chosen. That's an important one. Holy. When, we, when the church calls themselves holy, listen, like it or not, Redeemer, you are a holy people. However, the problem with it is that you think, and I think, and the world thinks, when we say holy, we mean morally perfect. That is not what Paul is saying. It's not what the Old Testament says. Holy literally means to be set apart, right? So if you see a, a ball of, uh, kids have a, a bag of marbles, I don't know if kids even play with marbles anymore, but if they did, video games maybe, um, and you pull out the, the marble you love the best, 
and you set it apart from the rest because you want it to be different, you want everybody to know it's different, and you're going to shine it up. You're not going to shine the other ones, maybe. You're going to work on this one. And Paul's saying, and what God is saying to Israel is, I chose you, I have set you apart from the world to look different than the world. I'm going to shape you into something that looks so different from the world that you're going to stand out like a sore thumb. In fact, it's going to draw attention to you. It is not saying we are perfect. It says you are going to be perfect. Leviticus 19.2, be holy, for the Lord your God is holy. That's not just a command, it's a promise. I'm going to make you holy. But no fool in the church would ever say, I'm holy, meaning I'm perfect. I hope you wouldn't say that. If you don't, again, ask your spouse if that's true. So that's what he means by holy. You've been chosen, you've been set apart for something. God has a, a task for us. And lastly, you are loved. There's so many passages in the Old Testament about love, but my favorite probably is Deuteronomy 7, 6 to 8. For you are a people, in fact, he mentions all three of those, chosen, holy, loved. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any, of other, any other people that the Lord, has, Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all people. But it is because the, Lord, because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to, his, to your fathers. And so, loved. And this now leads to the second. You are chosen, holy, and loved. And because you are loved, chosen, and holy, you, can ha- you have something. You are one thing, and because of that, you now have peace. So he literally says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Remember the language? Put on is active. Do something. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. That's a passive term, let. Meaning, you already have peace. Your job now is to let it do its job. Be quiet, be still, and know that I am God. This idea, peace is in you. That's literally what Christ bought for you, is peace with God. And so now your job is to allow the peace to rule in your heart. And put very simply, let's, look, let's think of some examples here. When you are anxious, and listen, we all get anxious. I'm not picking on anyone. We're anxious, we're angry, we're frustrated, any number of things. When we do that, what Paul's saying is, you're allowing your anxiety to rule in your heart. If you believe, uh, if, if the Smelskis, you know, if Paul and them were really w- terrified and worried to the point of, oh my goodness, life, I have no hope now for life. Everything is a mess because of what's happened. I've lost my house. Then what would be happening in that moment is Paul would rightly be able to say, not Paul, Paul, Paul the apostle, um, you are allowing anxiety to rule in your heart. But when you do that, you put it on the throne because peace is there. You have peace as a Christian. So if anything else is ruling you, anxiety, fear, frustration, bitterness, refusal to forgive, whatever it is, it's because you put it there. Your job is not so much to, uh, to cre- you don't create peace. Never. You cannot create peace in yourself. We've tried. All you do as a Christian is you allow peace. Let it rule. So resist. Give up your anger. Give up the frustration. And that's hard, and I know that. But that nonetheless is what we're being called to do. And this is so key to being a church because Dick Lucas is a, was a pastor in England, and he said this, when Christ rules in the heart, his peace will rule in the fellowship. Because you see, when you're a person who allows peace to be the ruler, and think about what a ruler is, a ruler sits on the throne, arbitrates and dispenses justice, and makes sure that everything is done rightly. So if peace is that ruler, then every time you get into a situation, you're seeking peace. You don't like something happening at the church? Because remember, this is a communal passage. 
what you do is you may have a problem, and there may be a time for disruption and to cause trouble and may raise a stink if something is heretical and unbiblical. But ultimately, the goal is always to be peace, not your ego, not to get somebody out of a job that you don't like, not to slap somebody down, but peace. So at times, unfortunately, that you do have to disrupt things to make peace at times. But is peace always the goal? And if peace is always on the heart, always on the throne of your heart, ruling, then you're going to have a church like that, right? And this is what Paul's trying to say. You, all this stuff you can do because you have Christ. You actually can do it. The problem, of course, is you don't. Now, move to the last point, nurturing. How do we do that then? How do we at Redeemer become a church that can, be, can create loving and peaceful disciples? How do we create a church that won't leave? I remember talking to, I've talked to a lot of pastors, and we were egotistical creatures, Men to begin with, pastors even more so. Anytime somebody gets on a stage and says, listen to me, there's an ego there, right? And so you have to understand that. And when we get a little bit too above ourselves and say, but look, look how God was moving. Look how our church grew because of my ministry. I often will say to them, listen, when you left the church, did it, did it fall apart? Yes. Then you built it for yourself, not for God. If, I don't care how big a true redeemer gets. If it grows to a bajillion people or stays a size, it really doesn't matter to me. If it grows and then after I leave, it crumbles because people were here because they liked me, which, listen, I don't think that's happening. But if that were, (laughs) I would have to eat humble pie and say, Lord, did I build my own cult of Carl? Is that what I did? And so we need to understand that we must build things for God's glory, build a family that will survive even when tragedy strikes or when something happens if john fawcett left that church in wayne's in waynesgate that i mentioned earlier would it have fallen apart probably not probably not and they probably would have loved the next pastor just as much because that's the people they probably were and that's what we want to do how do we do that here and paul gives us advice let me move as quick as i can through that first thing is he says is let the word of god dwell richly in you so the first thing let the word of god dwell richly so there's two parts dwell and richly So if something dwells in a place, it means it lives there. And it lives there. If you live in a house, you don't just consume. You're there and you give to the house. You're always fixing it. You're cleaning it. You're changing it. You're tearing things down. You're building things up. And the Word of God has to be present here at Redeemer, active. It means dwelling here means being found in everything we do. We have to teach it. We have to sing about it. We have to put it in our children's ministry. We have to put it in our policies and our procedures. It has to be in the cafe. Everything we do must be word-soaked. That's a good, that's, he said, that's, that's a safe way. Let the word dwell in you as a church and, of course, individually. But he's speaking corporately. Let the church, or sorry, let the word characterize everything we do. If we have an objection to something, scripture. If we, have, if we want to encourage people, Scripture, let's use the Word of God. Let it dwell here. Let it be so native to us that it comes out. I remember reading that in World War II to find German uh, spies. uh, They would take a penknife and jab it into the man's thigh when he wasn't ready. Because if he yelled, Achtung! He's German. Because in your moment of distress, you cry out in your native language. When we get stung at Redeemer, what is the native language? Is it, I'm leaving. I don't like what Carl said. I don't like what they're doing here. I don't like the person. I don't like that they brought this person here. If that's the case, your first instinct is to run. Listen, that's okay. You can do as you please. But understand that your first instinct ought to be scripture, mercy, forgiveness, patience. And we're all guilty, so I'm not picking on anyone in particular. 
So, yes, there's always, she's always hollering for me. It's as ethnic as we get as a church, you, because you're always hollering out to me. I love it. Sorry, side note. Oh, thank you. <laughs> so not just dwell in you, but richly. Now, richly is this idea of it's abundance. It literally means abundance in Greek. But think of a banquet. If you go to a banquet, well, think of what it might look like. Lots of different kinds of food, savory, sweet, different colors. It's beautifully arranged, probably. It's, got, um, it's really good as well. You wouldn't go to a banquet. Well, okay, you would, if I ran the banquet, it would just be like craft single slices and a can of Coke. I'm not the one who's going to make a rich banquet. But a good banquet is good food and rich. It's all the different kinds. There's all sorts of expressions of it. And if the word is going to dwell here at Redeemer, it must be richly displayed. It should be in our music. It should be in the art that we're producing. It should be in our conversations. It should be in everything, in every facet. I want to see the Latin people coming here and worshiping with Latin music, not Chris Tomlin. You know, Chris Tomlin's great. But worship, let's, let's have a vibrant place of worship of all expressions of God's people. Let, let it dwell, and let it dwell richly in you. So, first thing, more I could say. Second thing, says, second bit of advice to build a community that does this well is take an interest in each other's holiness. When he says, teaching and admonishing one another. In, verse, in chapter 1, verse 28, Paul says, his job as an apostle is to teach and admonish. And now he turns and says, it's your job as well, to do it to each other. Which means, to teach and admonish, it literally means to instruct and to warn. So you and I have to actually care about one another. Enough to encourage and to teach, and well, remember, with compassion, with love, with kindness, not as a jerk, and all those things. But also to warn. And that means not only being courageous enough to tell people when you think, are you okay? Is everything alright? But also being humble enough to receive it and not think, this guy's got some nerve, who are they? And this is what we have to be trying to do. And he does this little this thing here where he then, um, where is it there? Oh, he talks about the songs. I won't go into that because it's in your community group questions for this week. But he says to do it and in songs as well. And we'll, we'll cover that in the community groups. So we have to take an interest. A church that grows deep is one that takes each other's holiness very seriously. Okay? And we try to do that here. Not perfectly. Which means, of course, we exhort, we enjoy, we encourage, we equip... We do all these things with one another. And the last one is thankfulness. So churches that create these sorts of people and become this sort of community are people that are full of people that are thankful. He literally commands it in verse 15, be thankful. It's the imperative, be thankful. Um, and he says that because you have every reason to be, and it's for your good when you are. And then he says it again with the songs. So sing your songs, sing the worship songs, do it with, great, with gratitude in your heart. And it's because you have every reason to be grateful. It may not seem like it. I understand times can get dark. But the reason you don't worship is because something is on the throne of your heart. And he's saying, if you're actually thankful, which is difficult, but if you're thankful, then that will permeate everything entirely. Worship is an expression of gratitude overflowing towards God. That's what worship is. Worship is gratitude overflowing to God. Whatever form of worship. And this... Um, N.T. Wright, last time I'll mention him today, says a wonderful thing here about this. The center of Christian living is grateful worship, which is to affect whatever we do, since all things have been created through Christ and also, in principle, redeemed through him. Christians can do all that they do, whether it be manual work, political activity, raising a family, writing a book, playing tennis, or whatever, in, the name, in his name and with gratitude. 
Jesus is the true, divine, and human image of God, the one whose cross secured our reconciliation. And Sorry, Jesus, the true, sorry, the true, and is the reason for our gratitude and the one through whom we can now offer that gratitude to the Father himself. So Paul, so right is again correct. I won't say right. Because gratitude, see what he catches? He catches that last bit that Paul mentions. It's actually quite bizarre if you ever paid attention to the last thing Paul says in this passage. Giving thanks to God the Father through him. Meaning, you can't even thank God without Christ mediating it for you. See, what we, as a mediator, what it means is you have no, listen, you can't talk to God. That's what Jesus is saying. You can't get to God. He is there, holy, you are not. I am your mediator, Christ is. So everything you want, ask it in my name because you have no basis. I'm making you holy. You're not holy in, in as far as perfect, able to stand before God on your own. So it's one thing. We often think that, okay, I can ask God for healing and for faith and for strength through Christ. But do you ever think that even your worship has to be in Christ's name? Even your thankfulness needs to go to Christ. And imagine, I don't even know what the scene would be like in heaven, but at the right hand of the Father, Christ is saying something to the effect of, um, they're thanking you for me coming. Thank you for sending me for them. Like he's doing that. Even our thankfulness has to go through him. And this is where we get to the crux. How do you become a church like this? Because it's nice to put in practice, of the, I mean, these ideas, but how do you actually do it? And it's a reminder that everything is through him. The very fact that we are holy, chosen, loved, forgiven, and have peace is through him. You are chosen because he was rejected. You are holy because he was cursed. You are loved because he was despised. You're forgiven because he was punished. You have peace because he was restless. On the cross, when he says, I thirst, it's not just that he's thirsting for water. He's thirsty because he's tasting and he understands the human thirst for meaning, for belonging, for love, for peace, for justice, for forgiveness, and he feels the thirsting of all the longing of humanity. And he bore all that. He could be thirsty. He chose to be thirsty so that you could drink full of him. And when you begin to see that, Christians, you can put on what you have. You have access to all these things. Start, let's start helping each other put them on more regularly. Because when we do, we'll become that sort of community that John Fawcett had in Waynesgate, and one even more wonderful. But it's going to be hard. And then we'll begin, become the sort of church that impacts this world because they're going to look at us and say, how the heck can that church be that sort of a people given the people that are in it? How can such sinners make such a wonderful thing? The answer is through Christ. If you're a skeptic, forgiveness is waiting for you. And if you're here and you're not a Christian or you've been on the outskirts or you were dragged here by someone, which I was dragged once upon a time, then if you are saying, hey, this sounds like it makes a lot of sense, then this is the good news. If you are starting to be stirred towards God, that's because you might be like a Jonah. He's already chosen you, and now, I'm sorry, you have no hope anymore. Now you're his. He's going to be with you. He's going to hound you. He's going to drag you to him. But he's going to drag you so well, so winsomely, so beautifully, that you're going to think you chose him. So if you are now, even now, stirring, praise God. He's at work in you. But let's pray.